Investigators, this is one of those cases burned into my mind from the very first time I watched it on the news as a kid to becoming a newscaster myself and constantly thinking about Jody Husentrude, the anchor woman in the small town of Mason City, Iowa, who was hunted, abducted, and murdered. There have never been any official police suspects arrested in the case, but questions do center around two men who both interacted with Jody, her much older friend, John Van Sice, and Tony Jackson, the convicted rapist who turns out lived just a few blocks away from where Jody worked. I'm convinced that uh, the police have on their radar 10 to 12 people, all of whom, uh, I think, they, I think they, they have identified among the 12 uh, the, it, clearly, the murderer is one of those 12. And I will tell you, I haven't told anybody this before, I'm convinced that I have talked to the murderer. That's Steve Ridge, former investigative journalist who sat down with both men multiple times. What he has to say about those conversations could change your whole opinion in this case. Lots of new details and information I don't think is widely reported, if at all. His interviews from inside the prison, face-to-face with Jackson, and John Van Sice's backyard, the two had several conversations with a couple beers. It wasn't easy, but I managed to get in the prison and get to talk to Tony Jackson, and then went and visited him three times, um, which was in and of itself very interesting, just being in somebody in a federal prison that's doing life. Um, And then I also uh, ended up going out to Phoenix and uh, met with John Van Sice. I've been to his house now four times. And uh, again, I work under the assumption innocent until proven guilty. But, you know, I've sat in his backyard and drank a beer and had some pizza with him and his wife. And um, so, you know, I I would hate it if um, he were guilty uh, and that I developed I won't call it a friendship, but I, but I'm being kind to the guy. Like I, you know, he talks to me. He's told me a lot of stuff. And uh, again, all I see so far is circumstantial evidence. If there's hard evidence and he's ever charged, I told him. I said, if I come across something that proves to me you're guilty, I said I'm going to be all over you. <laughs> so I think, and Tony the same way. And they both said fair enough. So that's how I happened to talk to both of them. Steve believes that the case will be solved this year, and we'll get into why. But before we dive into the case, I want to let you know that the content is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. I also want to remind you that I have a special shout out to everyone who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. And a couple exciting announcements, True Crime Deadline nominated this year for a People's Choice Award. And I'm a featured speaker at this year's American Crime Fest. More on all that after the case. The murder of Jody Husentrude. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for this week's episode, episode 16, that takes us to Mason City, Iowa, 
a small Midwestern farming town with a population of about 30,000 people according to the census in 1995, when this story begins. Mason City is located 120 to 130 miles from Des Moines, Iowa, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Jody grew up in Long Prairie, Minnesota, and had hoped to work one day as a TV news anchor. Now keep in mind, during this time period, there is no smartphones. Internet was just starting out, and not many people watched cable news, so everybody watches the local news. And Jody Husentrude, in a small town like Mason City, Iowa, would have been a local celebrity. You are watching KIMT's Morning Show Daybreak. Thank you so much for joining us. June 15th already, I'm Jody Husentrude. That's a clip of Jody on the anchor desk where she worked at KIMT-TV. She was a blonde, bubbly, 27-year-old with a warm smile and thick Midwestern accent that she was trying to break. Her sister Joanne has spoken to me a few times on the phone and always describes Jody as sweet, innocent, maybe a bit naive, but never met a stranger. She loved golf, hanging out with her friends, and according to her diary, which was leaked to the local newspaper after her disappearance, she was looking to move on in her career. I recently spoke with Caroline Lowe from the Find Jody team, a nonprofit dedicated to shedding light on the case. That team has worked tirelessly over the past two decades, cinching in the timeline. And here's what we know on June 26, 1995, Jody anchored the morning news. She then attended the Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf fundraiser, which she left at 8 p.m. After that, John Van Sice told police that she was at his house to watch a home video of Jody's surprise 27th birthday party that he hosted a few weeks earlier. Then she went home, and we know she was at home because the next morning, assistant producer Amy Coons called Jody's house her landline, at 4 a.m., one hour after Jody was already supposed to be at work. Jody's apartment was only a mile away from the TV studio, so Jody said no problem, and she'll be there for the 6 a.m. newscast. She never showed up, and Amy Coons ended up anchoring the newscast and then called police. Police did a welfare check. They went to Jody's apartment, and they found signs of a struggle. Next to Jody's new red Mazda Miata that someone had given her as a gift, which we'll get into, was a bent key. Red high heel shoes, earrings, a blow dryer, and drag marks in the parking lot. Some neighbors had reported hearing a scream between 4 and 5 in the morning, and some saw a white van in the parking lot. Still, no suspect description. Jody's body has never been found. We know that there was a struggle because there was a palm print in Jody's car. Now there are a lot of theories in this case. Some question the Mason City Police handling of the investigation. Some speculate that police perhaps were involved. After all, the police chief brought home evidence, Jody's diary, which was then later leaked to the newspaper. There was a police officer who was fired and named several other officers she worked with as part of a cover-up. 
which has been extensively covered by the Mason City Gazette. Finally, there were questions over the handling of the crime scene. Others say that it was the work of a jealous co-worker who wanted Jody's job as newsreader. Another strong theory is that Jody knew something about another crime, the murder of a friend, Billy Pruin, three months before Jody disappeared. One of the other good friends of Jody and John Van Sykes was a guy named Billy Pruin, and he actually was murdered in his home um, three months before Jody went missing. And there's been a lot of speculation that Jody perhaps knew something, learned something, or was hell-bent on learning something, and that that could have been the reason. But the strongest leads that have received the most attention in this case center around Tony Jackson and John Van Sice. Tony Jackson, a violent rapist who is serving life behind bars today. He lived a few blocks away back then from Jody's work. And John Van Sice, who went to the crime scene after Jody disappeared and told people that he named his boat after her. Now for this episode, I was lucky enough to get an interview with Steve Ridge, whose day job is as a media consultant, including for TV stations, Jody's last station. On his spare time, Ridge is a citizen detective, digging into the case. He's a former investigative reporter and has interviewed both Tony Jackson recently and John Van Sice, as I mentioned. So he's in the Midwest and I'm in Hollywood, so we did this Skype interview for this episode, where I can see a fine Jody poster over his shoulder. You visited in prison Tony Jackson, convicted rapist. His ex-girlfriend that he had just broken up with something like five days before, she looks similar to Jody. He lived a couple blocks away from Jody's work, the um, TV station. Right. What was his demeanor like? What was he like? Well... I'll tell you, talk about another circumstantial case. She had reported that she had been stalked and that there that there was a black man on a bicycle that had been riding around in the area that she was fearful, a little fearful of that when she was running. And that was the only description that she could give. Uh, Tony does happen to be black. But uh, interestingly, he bought a car the day before she was abducted. Um, and it ended up getting returned, the check bounce, and was returned 14 days later. So in that case, there's speculation that he literally bought a car knowing he wasn't going to be able to keep it, but that's the only way he was going to be able to adopt and take her someplace. And there are a lot of other anecdotes around that. But when I met with him, I'll tell you, I mean, I have reasons to believe he's not the guy, okay, that, that I can't really explain other than sort of gut. Uh, and I think, again, you know, he certainly des- deserves scrutiny because, I mean, he, he, he was a convicted rapist. I mean, he, he's doing life in prison. So he can't be eliminated from possibilities. But I do think that there is some evidence which uh, would suggest that he, he's not the guy. And that's kind of what I've concluded. So and there are things like phone records and, you know, all kinds of things like that. But and he had also gone to the hospital like a couple of days before he claimed his leg was hurt. And he needed crutches, and people said, well, he wanted to pretend like he was on crutches so that he couldn't have possibly done it. And he was—he didn't show up for work that day, all day, until like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So 
I mean, I, you could put together a case and, and say, gosh, this just, it has to be. But <laughs> I would tell you that that's, you know, it's just, there can be coincidence, a very, very strong coincidence uh, that really isn't circumstantial, you know, isn't, doesn't fit the puzzle. Yeah, but um, that car that you're speaking of, I, it was Caroline Lowe's station in her reporting, and they tested the car, and there was nothing ever with that car at the time when they looked into it. And um, they also te- uh, checked out the mileage and where he had gone. And then there was the interesting thing with the poem. The cell inmate, um, the informant, that said that he was basically saying in a poem that where he had buried Jody's body is what some people speculated. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And uh, there was a fellow that was interviewed and identified by Caroline Lowe. He's since passed over dead. Um, can't recall what the circumstances are. You, you'd be amazed how many people are dead around this case. Part of it's age, but the other part of it is they're just mysterious deaths. Just uh, it's, it's incredible how many mysterious deaths there are. But um, he claimed and he wrote down, he, he said, first of all, that Tony was boasting that, um, you know, he was bigger than even rape. He'd murdered. He said, you know, that this guy said, he told me he abducted a TV anchor woman and murdered her. And he said he was constantly repeating uh, this refrain or whatever, um, which clearly suggested, in fact, the opening line was, there's a, uh, she's a stiffen in Tiffin. Uh, and, there is a town, Tiffin, that uh, Tony would have gone through frequently as a uh, basketball player uh, south of Iowa City in Otomo, where he played. So he was in that territory. He absolutely would have known Tiffin, where you ask yourself, well, how would this other guy have known about Tiffin? Well, somebody could have planted that information, you know, but yeah, they searched and didn't find anything. Right. They searched inside the silos. They had uh, the dogs and the cadaver dogs, and they didn't find anything. But my uh, question to you is, you look across from him, and I'm sure you asked what? I, I went right down the I told him, I said, Tony, uh, I've got to ask you, you know, I've got to be very specific. And I said, I really want you to look me in the eye. And by the way, when you go in the prison, um, the visiting time, there are numerous people that are there. But we tried to sit over against the wall. And you face each other on chairs, you know, but you're apart. You're, you're not supposed to touch one another. You're, you're supposed to, you know, maintain your distance. And uh, we both leaned in and we're kind of talking. And we were probably, you know, about this far apart. Um, and I said, I just got to ask you. I said, did you abduct Jody? You know, and he said, absolutely not. You know, I, I had, and he said, I've been carrying this with me. People think I did. And I said, okay. Do you know anything about the abduction? No, I would. So, again, I, I asked very similar questions to those of Van Sice, and uh, uh, he handled the questioning very well. Uh, he did tell me that he, in fact, had that leg injury, which uh, people speculated it was uh, a fake, uh, and the hospital uh, records uh, have never been made public. The police may have them, but he did roll up his pant leg and show me where he had a large a permanent bump on his leg. He said that he hurt in that fall. So, you know, he could be just a good actor, but uh, I don't know. You just have to, you have to go with your gut to a certain degree, but I do think there's uh, some exculpatory evidence in his case that uh, would explain. Uh, and again, some of this, I, I just, 
I just can't reveal at this point. It's it's just not it's not going to help anybody get to the bottom of it. Did he know who she was? Did he watch her on TV? He was quoted as denying that he even knew who she was. Uh, I will tell you that he did acknowledge for me that he knew who she was and pretty much confirmed he'd, he'd even seen her in person or perhaps met her casually. And that's interesting because he uh, he had never admitted to the rapes. And I mean, he, he went to prison for life maintaining his innocence. And I started with that. I asked him about it and he, he confessed to me that he did. In fact, rape those four women. And uh, I asked him why he never said, you know, why he wouldn't tell anybody. And he said, I, I wasn't in the right place with God to do that. But I am now. So I so I said, you know, that's when I when I talked about Jody. Uh, I said, OK, if you're in the right place with God now, tell me. Let's talk. And, and he said, I, I knew she was. I, you know, uh, I think I think he said I've I've seen her in person. Uh, which would sync up with some of the other statements that have been made, but it certainly doesn't uh, indicate that he that he would have been stalking her or would would have abducted her. Twenty years ago, Mason City Police ruled Tony Jackson out as a suspect. That's according to reports by WCCO. As for John Van Sice, he is said to be moving back to Iowa with his wife, according to Steve. In 2017, he was subpoenaed by a federal grand jury and ordered to give a new DNA sample and fingerprints. And two weeks after that, police obtained a search warrant to get GPS data from two of his vehicles. So I called him one day. I mean, he answered his home phone and I explained who I was and what I was doing. Um, I got about one sentence in and he hung the phone up. And, you know, at that point, if you... Normally, I think a person would think, well, maybe I want to take another tack. But something in my gut told me, call back, call back. And so I did. And his wife answered. And she gave me a little bit more time to, you know, she listened to what I had to say and said I was working on the case. And I said, if I can prove somebody else did it, you know, like it gets John out of the, <laughs> you know, out of the limelight as a suspect. So she said, well, let, 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 let us think about it. If I'm interested, I'll call you back. Well, I thought that'd be the end of it. Um, sure enough, a week later, she called. and She said, well, we've talked it over, and we checked you out, uh, meaning me, and she, they had gone online and kind of saw my background and everything. And I think they kind of saw me like, well, you're not necessarily a journalist. So you're, I mean, it's like I, my role is just very different. And um, so she agreed to meet with me in Phoenix at a coffee shop first. And then I uh, went that day and uh, was ready to leave town the next day because I we hadn't agreed yet that John was ready to meet. And that night she called me. I was going to be going to Dallas or New York, I think. She called me and she said, well, you know, I've been talking to John. I said, why don't you come on over to the house tomorrow? What was his demeanor like and what did you ask him? So I looked him in the eye and I, you know, I said, uh, John, did you abduct Jody? And he said, no, I didn't. I said, did you have anything to do with her abduction or murder? And uh, he said, no, I didn't. And we, we, so we went through various iterations. And then I started asking him very fine-tuning questions because I had developed a list of probably 30 or 35 things that I wanted to touch on that I already had looked into myself, where he lived, where she lived, details on the boat, all of that kind of stuff. So I had to confirm all the detail around that. But I also 
bounced off of him ideas about other potential uh, suspects and, and the like. And actually, in brainstorming together, we did identify a couple of other people that needed to be looked at. And I added them to the list of the other five that I already had, including Tony Jackson. So it was kind of free flowing. And um, I'll tell you, if the guy's guilty, uh, I have never dealt with someone who has been that open and forthcoming and so immediate in his answers that it, it just, it, it's kind of odd how it just, I just, I can ask him anything and he'll address it. He doesn't duck any question, but who knows? I mean, he, <laughs> and he knows I'm saying this stuff. I've said it before and he's seen it because I have to stay dispassionate, obviously, and be prepared for anybody to be guilty uh, in this situation. There was a search warrant for two of his vehicles recently. Did you talk to him about that? I did. And ironically, uh, what's interesting is those vehicles, uh, neither one of those vehicles were vehicles that he or his current wife had at the time of the abduction of murder or apparent murder. We obviously have never found the body, but she was declared dead. So they were very curious, like, why would they want to examine our newer vehicles? And they what apparently the uh, search warrant said was uh, alluded to the fact that they wanted to check the GPS systems to see if they could learn where they had been, what they'd driven by, you know, thinking that, uh, you know, on the theory that the murder always returns to the scene, which they do, you know, just like the guy, the arsonist that starts the fire, look at the crowd first, it's probably right there. Um, And so that wasn't a bad strategy, but only a little bit came out in that search warrant, and then it was resealed once it was discovered it was public. So I believe that when it's opened in the file analysis, it's very possible that it also had provision for uh, putting some kind of a tracking device on those cars so that they could see where they go in the future. Uh, And of course, they could do that under court order. And he's been back to Mason City. So but that's why I think that search warrant, um, that, that's what the story is with that. The thing that I discovered and revealed only recently is the fact that they're separately uh, subpoenaed to appear at the federal grand jury in order to have new fingerprints, palm prints, uh, swab, blood tests, the whole, the whole gambit. And the only thing I can think with that is that they wanted very, very fresh, current, you know, samples or what have you. And who knows, maybe just going to, you know, great lengths or whatever to try to try to figure it out. But uh, so I well, that was made public. That's been put on the Find Jody uh, website. Yeah. So that's it as far as the subpoenas and everything. That's pretty interesting, though, because the crime scene wasn't secure at her apartment. And also the palm print inside her car ended up being a police officer. So it's interesting. I wonder if there is some sort of DNA evidence that they have found or they're wanting to retest um that's hopeful yeah i think it is i i will tell you that the police chief the current police chief um has sort of rededicated the department to this case so the new police chief dedicating more resources to the case which is great news and john van Syce now moving back to that area back to mason city but time is running out because it's been reported van Syce is having memory issues. And in fact, in the time that I have been visiting with him, I have noticed a progression of memory issues. 
And as a matter of fact, I think the formal diagnosis uh, that he got in terms of dementia um, is one of the reasons he was interested in coming back to Iowa. And so they, I decided to go ahead and break that story and say that the guy was coming back to Iowa. And when I saw that he had Alzheimer's, first of all, I requested proof. I wanted to really see if it, you know, I didn't I want to make sure there were any tricks going on. Uh, I read the 11 page report in its entirety and it, it definitely showed progressive, rapidly progressive, uh, Alzheimer's. And I've noticed the progression in the four times I've been there. I mean, Alzheimer's can move very fast. And I can't imagine how the guy could testify, not that he'd want to, as, you know, as the uh, defendant. But, um, gosh, I, I don't know what you do with that kind of a situation. I mean, it's like he's not capable of even participating, you know, heavily in his defense. I mean, and that, well, that all, so that happened in six months. Does John still have anything of Jody's? Does he still have the birthday tape? No. Uh, I've asked him repeatedly. I had a tour of his house. I was allowed to look at anything I wanted to, pick up anything, look at anything. I, I asked him, I said, do you have, like, is there anything Jody gave you? Is there any memento that you have that you kept or what have you? Uh, and, of course, part of why you ask those kinds of questions is that it's possible that he would keep a souvenir that she had with her when she went missing. I'm sure one of your questions with him was his demeanor after she went missing. He was very forthright with media saying, I was the last to see her and things like that. Um, did you ask him about that? I did, because obviously you talk about a poor choice of words. Um, the last person to see her was whoever abducted her, right? I mean, uh, and I think that as he said it, I mean, it could be a Freudian slip, but I think I think he was conscious of what he was saying, that the idea that, gosh, I was just with her last night. I was the last one to see her. And then she went home and got abducted this morning. So I think that was the context. But if you take it quite literally, I mean, he did say he was the last one to see her. And uh, so that obviously caused him some issues. And then he also talked about the fact that he had named his boat Jody after her because you couldn't help but love her. And tons of people, you know, said, well, he obviously was romantically interested, even if she wasn't, and that that probably played into it. Um, and then she had just gotten a new car. Uh, it was a 91 Mazda Miata, red with a convertible top. And this was 95. So it was fairly new, low miles, um, probably a pretty expensive car. And there's been a lot of uh, speculation around whether that car was given to her by somebody or whether it she bought it outright. And uh, I actually, I know the answer to that now, but I'm not disclosing it because there are just certain things that I just have to sit on in good conscience um, because it would only complicate the case. It, it wouldn't help advance it. And, and I don't want to put stuff out there that's not going to advance it now that I better understand it. Well, didn't he buy the car for her? Somebody did. I can tell you that. Was it the car dealer? The, no, the golf buddy that was, you know, he liked Jody? Well, there are several people. There are four or five who would-be candidates. In fact, um, the speculation, strong speculation has been that it was a married man that gave her the car. 
And uh, even uh, there is uh, LaDonna, who uh, went walking normally with John every morning, who uh, testified before the uh, grand jury, said that he mentioned that she had been uh, she had you know been given the car, but that she was planning to give it back. And she asked John why, and he said because he's married, and she didn't know that. So there are several people. A couple of them are golfers. Um, I'm not using any of those names. I, I know them. I've reached the people. I've talked to probably 350 people. I've created files for, I'm up to 126 files on people. <laughs> All right here. Now today, Jody would be 51 years old, probably married with kids, her sister tells me. Caroline and Steve think that she would be anchoring the news in Minneapolis, which was her dream, but we'll never know. On June 5th last year, on Jody's 50th birthday, the fine Jody team put billboards up in Mason City that read, Someone knows something, is it you? Jody's sister told 48 Hours last December, quote, It could be someone you least expect. Police consider Jody's case an open investigation. Anyone with any information, call Mason City Police at 641 421 3636, or the CDI, which is the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, at 515-725-6010. Let's bring Jody home. I'll post a video and pictures of the case on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, and on Twitter and Facebook under the same name. Now remember, after the episode, a shout out to those of you who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts and I'll share with you a couple podcasts I think you might like. But I also want to leave you with this thought. During the interview, Steve tells me he believes that he interviewed the killer and has information he can't quite share just yet publicly. But he did say this. If we ever get to a, a conclusion on the thing, there's there's quite a lot I would be able to, be able to release. I mean, sort of after the fact. And... I'm just hell-bent that we'll solve this thing and put it to bed or at least make an arrest by the 25th anniversary of her disappearance. And if that happens, I've got a lot of information that I can share that would probably explain it. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now a post-episode announcement. True Crime Deadline is a finalist nominated in the storytelling drama category of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. So thank you anyone who voted for me. It's a huge deal since I started this podcast adventure earlier this year. And thanks for being along for the ride. Also, thank you investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Here are a couple I wanted to give you a shout out. And if I don't read your review in this episode, I will in a future episode, promise. All right, so the first one says, Terrific show, interesting cases, and very well produced. One of the best to listen to, polished, great find, exclamation mark. Um, thank you for all the work that you put into True Crime Deadline. Well, thank you very much, Roxy Z, um, for that. And the next one says, 
Fantastic podcast, five star. I highly recommend the podcast to anyone who is a true crime podcast listener. The quality production is great. Matt is an outstanding host and keeps you coming back for more. I can tell um, a lot of research is done carefully. I love the show. It's perfect to binge. And that comes from Nikki T., who's a host of Strictly Homicide, which is also a really great podcast. Check it out. And finally, this one says, Inside True Crime. Matt is a fantastic host and able to access information that other true crime podcasts are unable to. Well, that's true. Uh, The podcast is well done and bite-sized, so you can binge them all easily. That was the idea. Keep up the great work, Matt. And that's from Alyssasaurus Rex. Alyssa, you have an awesome name. Again, thanks for writing reviews. It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed because we're up against networks, studios, TV channels now. Um, So thank you. It's easy. It's free. Hit five star, subscribe, tell a friend, write a review. Um, Include your real name and your podcast name if you're a podcaster because I want to give you a proper shout out. Now, speaking of, I'm excited to tell you about two true crime podcasts I just found. One is called Murderific True Crime, and the other is called Bloody Murder. Let's start with that one. Bloody Murder is a true crime podcast from Down Under, and it's really fun to listen to. Interesting cases. I love the hosts, and they've won a bunch of Australian podcasting awards. So grab a cup of tea and check them out. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favorite podcatcher. Now, the second podcast is called Murderific True Crime, hosted by Bernadette from the scary state of Maine in the U.S. Check it out. Check out the Murderific True Crime podcast, hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, the missing in unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then, we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. You can find them and us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, basically anywhere you binge. Now a final message before I let you go. My investigators who love true crime like me, check it out. I am going to be a speaker and featured podcaster at American Crime Fest, which is sponsored this year by Crawl Space and Unsolved Magazine. We hope to see you there. Crime Festival is where the world's leaders in true crime, media, podcasts, and citizen detectives are coming together in one event. November 8th through 10th, 2019 in Wildwood, New Jersey is where it's at. The American Crime Fest will include star-studded presentations and compelling panels from the world of true crime. You can watch Aphrodite Jones go toe-to-toe or beak-to-beak with Larry Pollard as they debate the owl theory in Netflix's The Staircase, based on the Michael Peterson case. I see what you did there with beak-to-beak. 
Go behind the scenes with your favorite podcasters, like us. Who wouldn't want to hang out with us? Listen to experts discuss evidence and their theories on notable cases. Please visit AmericanCrimeFest.com for more info. And stay tuned as personalities, presenters, and topics are added on a continuing basis. Don't miss this opportunity to meet, mingle, learn, and discuss your investigation with your favorite podcasters, true crime personalities, and other citizen detectives at the Jersey Shore along the beautiful oceanfront. So join us in Wildwood. New Jersey on November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And remember, the 8th is an exclusive, intimate VIP night for the American Crime Festival. Sign up soon for the best ticket prices. It's going to get wild in Wildwood. AmericanCrimeFest.com.